you know, I'm an old geezer. I mean, I'm 77. You know, what the are the kids doing? I don't know. <laughs> well, he does know quite a lot, as it turns out. After all, he did discover one of the biggest rock bands of the 20th and 21st century. And a lot of other things along the way, as you're going to find out. I'm Stephen Coates. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture, dedicated to countercultural, rare, half-forgotten, half-remembered stories. And my guest today, well, he was there. He was managing the counterculture in some way. He was instrumental in the setting up of the Free School in Notting Hill, which led to International Times, one of the most important of the independent underground press newspapers. He also, apart from that band that I mentioned earlier, he helped the careers of many other people you've heard of. Mark Boland, Ian Drury, The Clash, Billy Bragg, Roy Harper, and that band, of course, the Pink Floyd. He's Peter Jenner, one half of the management company Black Hill that discovered the Floyd, uh, and then later on with sincere management with his daughter Mushi. And thanks, Mushi, for setting up this conversation with Pete. We appreciate it. So, here we go. He's irascible, charming, funny, unsentimental about the counterculture, I would say. Very honest and very modest, considering what he's done. He is Pete Jenner. Hello, Pete. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Well, I'm great. And thank you for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. So, Pete, I've given a bit of an intro then, but who are you? Oh, for Christ's sake. Yeah, well, I'm just an old waffler. (laughs) Well, tell us, waffle on, uh, tell us about how you came to be involved in the 60s in the council court, because you had a bit of a political background, and I think you're a Londoner, right? So how did it, uh, how did you get there? Yeah, so the 60s was where my my sort of, as it were, involvement in all this sort of stuff started. I was born in 43, so I grew up in the 50s, and... My parents were political. My grandfather was an MP. Um, My father was a vicar, but was also very involved in campaigns of one sort and another. Um, He he was involved in sort of anti-nuclear stuff and so on. He was also involved in various campaigns as a vicar about people who were being hung and things like that and trying to stop them being hung. And he was always in trouble with the uh, the diocese, you know. Campaigning is, as it were, in the family. So I guess I come from a family of troublemakers. Right. So politics is in the blood. The other thing which is in your blood is music. So how did you evolve into what you were to become later? You know, when did you really start to get into music? Well, I started mixing with people and, and getting to know people and... and, and... I mean, one of the things which happens when you get to university is you don't really know anyone, so you become involved in 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 groups because that way you get to know people. And one of the things I became involved with was the sort of labour group, and and then also music people. There was a, a a good music scene going on in Cambridge, and so I was a sort of I was always I'd been a music fan, so I would hang out what looking at music and hang out with musicians and hanging out with politicians. So in a sense, I suppose politics and music have always been pretty crucial. In, in Right, but when you were at Cambridge, you were studying economics, did very well, got a first-class degree from Cambridge, so pretty brainy, right? Went to work at London School of Economics, pretty brainy. So you weren't planning, since you were planning to be a music manager. What was your vision for your life then? Um, 
I suppose I was going, I don't know, I saw moving towards being a, um, a government expert on social welfare issues in a sort of broader sense. You know, this was late Wilson time and, and so I was involved with, with those sorts of issues as an academic. And there's quite a few people like that around at the time, right? I mean, you said uh, in your interview with Jonathan Green for Days in the Life all those years ago, um, you said, I think that the reason that Oxford and Cambridge people, I assume you mean academic students and musicians and stuff, had such an influence in the early underground is because we'd been given the works, baby boomers, I guess, we'd scored somehow through a combination of our parents and our abilities. We've been given the best of what traditional Britain had to offer, and it wasn't very impressive. So I guess there was a sounds like somewhat of a of a class thing going on, was there? Yeah, well, I I think that we we didn't see our, we weren't upper class in that sense. Our families were the agro, were the sort of middle class agro people. So one of my best friend Sam Hutt, his father was involved with running the uh, the Morning Star. Right, so been to Cambridge, come to London, working at the LSE, teaching, you're academic. Um, I mean, it sounds to sound like you're one of those people from that particular class who was, you know, bound for power, you know, going to go and work in the government. Kind well, I wasn't you. actually moving towards working in government. I was moving towards working on government issues and sort of you know telling the government what they should do rather than actually being the government doing it are you one of those people who likes telling people what to do i guess i must be you know because i was doing that and then i end up being a manager where you tell people what to do so i guess i (laughs) I, and you should also talk to mushy about that i mean i guess i'm a bossy boots and i have i have all the answers but i'm also have about a, a, a a, a uh, humility about that. I do know that I don't know all the answers. <laughs> but you make this big uh, career vocational swerve from future government advisor, academic, political person to, you know, member of the counterculture and music manager. So let's get into that. What made that, uh, you know, what were the roots of that change? I was always a music fan. I was a music fan before I was interested in politics. I mean, as a kid, my brother, myself, we spent all our money, you know, going to gigs and things and hanging out at the Gaumont State Kilburn, trying to get the uh, autographs of the Duke Ellington Orchestra and things like that. And, you know, when I was about 17, I'd gone to America. I went to America. My father sent me to, to America and we managed to Andrew King and myself and, and so on. We, we wandered around uh, listening to music and seeing people play in Chicago, walking across the south side of Chicago late at night, three sort of 16, 17 year olds. I mean, madness, still a rough area, but there we go. We would, we would go there. So I had some great experiences and then we traveled around in America and we went to Mexico. So I, you know, I sort of wandered around. Yeah, so fast forward through to the early 60s, that wandering has brought you to London, living in Covent Garden, sharing a flat with Eric Clapton, um, some guy who play guitar a bit. Was there a sense then in London of uh, this bourgeoning counterculture, the underground scene coming? And, and uh, you know, did you feel like, oh, I want to be part of that or something? 
Perhaps. I mean, but I think that what one thought one was doing, one was in there grooving and being groovy, you know, and, and the happening scene. So whatever was happening, one wanted to be involved in it and sort of one became involved with it. For Demir, what else should I do? You know, am I going to be, you know, am I going to go be a school teacher or am I going to be groovy? So, of course, I decided to be groovy. <laughs> well, okay, what did, gro- what did being groovy look like? How did you, paint us a picture of how you look, Pete. Oh, I had long hair and I had a real shitty beard. Oh, I had a little bowl cut in a suit. I forgot that completely mushy. I'll take Mushy's word for that. When you first started with the, the Floyd, you were a little suit teacher, respectable looking young man. Oh, yes. Did you hear all that? Mushy was saying I was a respectable looking young man when I was a teacher. Yes. And of course, we should mention another groover, Andrew King, your lifelong friend and uh, business associate, co-manager later on. You guys were buddies, so you were kind of doing uh, much of this stuff in parallel, right? He was also another vicar's son, and we spent time together. You know, his father was a vicar out in the country, and I was in London. We were going to school in London. So he, we lived with each other for some time. He was stuck with my family for some time. Right, and you ended up managing discovering the Floyd together. So you're at LSE, you're quite a political animal, political background, you're a massive music head at the same time. And uh, then you make this big career swerve. This is what you said to Jonathan Green about that discovery and that thing which kind of seemed to kick off this big change in your life. While I was marking some exam papers at the LSE, I needed a break. So I went over to the Marquee where there was a gig. It was a private gig, and the band playing was called the Pink Floyd Sound. There were various people sliming around in jelly, and colour was being thrown all over them. And I saw the band and I thought, they'll do. That sounds fun and quite simple. Yes. <clears throat> well, first of all, there, were, there was a sort of, uh, when I, it was a happening. I don't know if that was actually the word they used. I think it might have been. It was a happening. So there were, when I arrived, and there was some sort of, naked girls or apparently naked girls slithering around on the floor of the marquee um, in in sort of coloured jelly. Um, and then there was this band playing. Because uh, the marquee was a big sort of music club, but it was a Sunday. So it wasn't the normal special event. And it was Stol- Bernard Stolman and he he was from um, New York and, and we, it was also, as it were, the international sort of, avant-garde hippie world as it were. I saw the band, went to see the band and what got me was the fact that I didn't know where the noise was coming from. In other words I could tell that was the drums, there was the bass, there was someone singing but then there was some other stuff going on and I couldn't distinguish between with my ears whether it was from the keyboard player or whether it was from the guitar player. And that intrigued me. So that's why I started wandering around looking at who was playing what, because there was lots of repeats going on. So that Sid was playing with a lot, with a Binson Echorec, which was an, an early echo machine, a sort of repeat machine. And then Rick was playing with lots of you know, sustained chords. So that there was a lot of swirling around of, of things. And then through that, you know, um, Roger and Nick would be sort of keeping a sort of a, a beat going, you know. So it was intriguing. It was it, to me. It was intriguing. It was it was avant garde. It was uh, it was a different. It wasn't playing the blues. 
I mean, that's the other thing. A lot of all the bands that were blues bands, and it wasn't just a blues band. It's obviously the blues influence, but it wasn't a blues band. And it wasn't a guitar virtuoso band because Sid wasn't a guitar virtuoso. Um, so it wasn't like an Eric Clapton or it wasn't a sort of, you know, it's Pete Green or anything like that. It wasn't a virtuoso thing. Nor was there a sort of leader like a John Mayall. So it was a very sort of interesting combination of people. And it wasn't what most of the sort of the standard bands you'd see of us, you know, in London would not be like that. They were different. And that's what I like. They were different. Right. And different enough so that you decided that you wanted to, to manage them. I think so, more or less. Yes. I mean, we went out and found them. Well, I mean, essentially it was saying, I, 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 you're a band. I'd like to be a manager and I'd like to manage you. What do you think? It was as pretty well as, as simple as that. And I think they thought, well, we don't have a manager. Neither of us really knew what a manager did. But there was an assumption that bands had managers and that I think that managers thought that they told the band what to do and the band thought that managers paid for everything. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? So there was a, you know, I mean, that was, why do you have a manager? Well, because he'll buy you equipment. So then we bought them equipment, you know, and, and so on. There was, you know, there was this sort of, uh, on both sides, and a huge ignorance about the, what the hell we were doing. I mean, except somewhere in there, there were some people playing music and there were some people trying to uh, generate some e economic value around it, you know, get paid, you know, because, you know, it, we were all young and we needed to start getting paid. You know, we couldn't just live off our parents, though some of us did to some extent. How did you know um, what it meant to be a music manager then at the time? Oh, that was a classic story was... Um, it, at a party at Hoppies, uh, I was there and the Floyd were there and, and, and the um, soft machine were there at the party. And I went to uh, one of them and I, another them and I said, hi, I'm Pete Jenner and, and, and um, I, I'm managing the Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're in the soft machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because one of the soft machine lived above my flat in, in, in um, just off Elgin Avenue. And um, and I said, well, as a matter of curiosity, what does a manager do? And the, I, he gave a, a, an answer, which I still think is one of the greatest answers. It was, ask Henry. Ask Henry. <laughs> yes, Henry's our manager. And if someone asks us about something, we say, ask Henry. <laughs> That's it, right? Great definition of what a manager does is ask Henry. He, he, I was Henry, and so therefore I would be asked what to do, you know, so ask Henry. I wonder where Henry is. Hope he's out there still. Um, we should ask him. Um, so you mentioned Hoppy then, John Hopkins, a big, you know, pivotal figure in that whole underground West London countercultural scene. So you're managing the Floyd, but you're also getting deeper into that whole scene and Hoppy of course and Barry Miles uh, old friend of us he um involved in the foundation of International Times you know the underground's main newspaper and then the free school tell us about the London free school it was a it was a it was a young posh boys um attempt to relate to the the, the you know 
illuminate the working classes. <laughs> How so? It's a merely 19th century, if you want to think about it. It was very sort of traditional. Now, you know, there was our public school boys. We would all come to, gone to Oxford or Cambridge, you know, and we were all posh boys, really. And we were all young. And then we would sort of go round to sort of Notting Hill in, in the Paris Terrace and all around there by the Tabernacle, all around that area. You know, and it was very impoverished. There was a big problem with landlords, you know, uh, what was his name, the Rackman, and he was involved. And one of the people who did his work for him was um, Michael X, Michael, Michael Abdul Malik, Michael X, you know, and he was, he was one of Rackman's men. And so it was a weird combination that the, that we posh kids were going to help sort sort out the problems of the poor, you know, the poor people living in their slums, because they were slummed, their backroom was pretty ropey. So that's where we started the, the, the idea of the London Free School, because we would teach these poor, ignorant, working class people about the that the, uh, pass on our knowledge from... Well, was there a, um, what was the curriculum? What did this London Free School actually do? We talked more about what we were going to do than actually doing it. You know, it was all <laughs> sitting around talking about what we'd do and not very much of actually doing anything. But there were some things, it was like the International Times, and it was a sort of, it was also a focus for people to meet and 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 to change the atmosphere of, of London in some ways, which it did, you know, because and we 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 saw ourselves in a way as a community, but we were, as it were, also very aware of the fact that we were, you know, we were the golden generation. We'd had it very, you know, we we benefited from the welfare state big time, and we'd all gone to you know. So there was an awareness of of, of a of a, a sort of social obligation yeah and that social obligation you know you've said you kind of inherited that as part of your kind of family's dna and of course you know despite your modesty that about the london free school lots of great things did come out of it international times obviously you know the the great underground newspaper but also uh, all those events at the tabernacle um which i think it became a kind of focus a social focus for various psychedelic happenings and stuff with the Floyd and with others. Certainly I did have a lot to do with, with the, the, the church hall because we needed a place where we could put on events and there in the middle of Paris Terrace or around in Paris Square there was a church. I thought well okay if there's a church hall I know for my father being a vicar they don't you know, they sit there and they don't make much money. You know, you have the odd wits, whist drive. So they would like to make some money. And it's also a place where, in some senses, the reason for having a church hall is so the community can meet place, have a place where the community can meet. They can have. So in a sense, we, you know, I saw the possibility that the church hall could be a place that we could, as it were, we could be the community which uses it. And... You know, the, the the vicar was quite cool about it, and we paid him his three quid or whatever it was to rent the hat, the building. We were part of the community, I guess, was his view. And the gigs that you were doing there, those early gigs with uh, Pink Floyd, um, they became quite epochal in some way, didn't it? Set the scene, you know, with not just the band, but with a whole Technicolor light show. Hoppy had this connection with these people who did light shows, so they were we were able to put them up in the 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 balcony in the church hall and they were able to project things while people played so that whole mixture of sound lights which which became a key part of the early 
Pink Floyd things. It was a sound light experience. That was what was interesting about what we did, I guess, was that, that, that we, it wasn't just about music and, and it, it, it was a sort of very open. So when we started doing things in, in, in uh, Tottenham Court Road down in the Barney Club, you know, there would be poems and poets and light projections and people playing music. And it was a, it was a very sort of open world, you know, and it was very culturally open. It was a, a centre for all those sort of alternative culture. Right, so you started off in the Tabernacle with that stuff, developing it in Labrick Grove, West London, and then moves over to Central London, that Blarney Club, the Irish club that you mentioned, that was that became UFO, uh, the Swinging 60s Psychedelic Centre. And you had hands in setting all that up, right? Yeah, I mean, um, Joe Boyd had a lot to do with it and Hoppy found it. And what it was, it was an Irish club. It was an Irish it was a bar underneath a was it underneath a, it was a, it was a, a dance hall and it was a dance hall underneath a cinema what was good what what made it important was that it had a bar and the bar couldn't work on sundays bars weren't open on sundays back then so it was as it were an empty space on a sunday because sundays were very closed up back then you know that the you know pubs weren't open on sundays or, or cinemas often wouldn't be open on sundays there'd be a band often the floyd but sometimes some other things there'd be bands there would be poets reading poetry in a corner when there wasn't the band going on there would be some projections um there would be some people doing some quotes dance to the music you know so there was some pretty ropey dancing going on but all very amateur and all very in the spirit and most importantly it was fashionable it became instantly fashionable it got a coverage in the melody maker which was the big paper at the time and um so it became very popular very quickly you know it was uh, it was pretty groovy it sounded pretty groovy. We had Jenny Fabian, the author of the book Groupie, in here last year. And of course, a lot of that book, you know, takes place in the scene, as she calls it, in central London. And UFO is very much part of that. And she describes wonderfully nights down there. But she also says something which is quite interesting, which is that that whole scene, which I suppose has become a bit mythologised, possibly over-mythologised, you know, she says about it, it was very small, you know, there, it was just a few hundred people uh, rather than, you know, some big earthquaking movement. Yes, it was a very small group of people. I mean, the Blarney Club, which was UFO, I mean, I mean, if you actually rammed everybody in, if it was a really packed night, you might have had two or three hundred people there. Mm-hmm. That would have been very busy. But they were small gigs. Because we all knew, it, you know, you knew each other. It was a sort of, so it was quite, and people, a lot of people who knew people were there. And, and uh, so you would go there and, and maybe meet more people. It was very social. And that small social group, despite its size then, did you have a sense that it was the beginning of something, that something was going on, that, you know, you could uh, change the world in that kind of optimistic, utopian 60s way, that this countercultural scene was going to bring about some lasting change. There was that perception, I think, that, that 
somehow or another we were changing the world and changing society. And that was all also in the context, again, I keep going back to Wilson, Wilson government, that, that post-war government in the 50s was very important, that Labour government, you know, was, was very significant. So you're getting quite busy, you know, you've got the UFO going on, you've got London Free School, all that other stuff in Labrick Grove, and of course, you know, you're managing the Pink Floyd who are getting busier and busier and busier, and uh, so you guys, I guess, had to get serious right when i sort of became a professional manager with andrew andrew and i sort of set up black hill which was set up in a in a, in a shop front in alexander street with his his now wife had a, a and her girlfriend they they had a a, a, a a studio they did they were artists art studio and they were doing art and they came out of art school from cambridge actually cambridge art school and I think that's, it's interesting, that Cambridge thing, because Sid was from Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And so there's quite a sort of Cambridge connection, but I don't think they particularly knew each other, though, the, the, you know, Andrews, Wendy and, 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 and the Floyd people. But there was a, a, a lot of it was coming out of Cambridge in the Cambridge Art School. What year was this then? 67, 69, they sound sort of a bit familiar. And then what, um, what made the big sort of jump up for... Pink Floyd, because from this underground band playing these little gigs to, you know, big record deals and much bigger gigs and uh, starting to take off and touring all over the place, including going abroad. And were the people helping you with that? Well, yes. uh, The very key important person was was Brian Morrison. And that was very key. They were, as it were, our guides to perfect the professional music business. Because, I mean, we were doing just things in, in the um, uh, the church hall were strictly amateur, really, you know. Um, and it was then through the connection with this, with, with Brian Morrison and, and, and his op- operation that we, we, that the Floyd were able to get out and do gigs and find gigs. I mean, I didn't know where to find a gig. I mean, I could, you know, we were capable of putting together some, a gig in a place where no, where it wasn't normally a gig, i.e., a church hall or something, but we weren't in the music sort of channels, and so people like Brian Morrison were very important in in advice. Well, where you know we should have a record deal, shouldn't we? Yes, yes. Well, who should we go to? Where should we go to? There are these record companies. What, what record company should we go to? And he said, go to the biggest company in 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 in. Um, in the country, so we went to an, an EMI. Uh, it was e- that, at that stage, it was EMI was the biggest record company because most of the other record companies were either very small, like relatively small, like Pi, or else they were the early manifestations of offices for American labels. That was beginning to start, but they weren't big at their own time. At that time, they were small operations, and there were, you know, there were. Philips had an operation. And so there were various people who'd sus, various companies sus that something was happening in London. So there were these other operations coming into London. The enemy was seen as a bit now. The enemy was pop. Interestingly, it completely turned. The enemy was seen as pop and the melody maker came more from jazz. It was a jazz magazine. Pop was uncool and jazz was cool. And, uh, it's interesting how that completely turned around, you know. What was it you think that made EMI go for 
Pink Floyd because you know huge record company, small underground band. Uh, what was what, what kicked it all off? We started in the autumn, and by Christmas we had a, the central spread in the Melody Mix, which was the big music paper, and it was like this was the the sound of the next year. So that there was an awareness that, that and, and so I think that's how EMI realized that there was something going on with all this underground stuff. And if you're interested in the underground, it was the Pink Floyd or the Soft Machine. And the Pink Floyd were definitely the, the bigger dogs. What did that feel like? You, you just now signed to the biggest record label in the UK, one of the bigger ones in the world. Must have been exciting. Well, it was just sort of like, oh, that's great, isn't it? They gave us an advance. Fantastic. We were able to buy some equipment, you know, and you know, people, we could get ads in the Melody Maker because they would put ads in the Melody Maker for us and things like that. So it was, as it were, it was a, it was a clear step up. You know, having a label, being in, in a, on a label was an obvious step up. It was the step up so that we became a semi-pro operation. It was only later on that we became professional and then we screwed it all up. <laughs> well, we're going to come back to that uh, in a bit. But, you know, there you are, crikey, you've, you've taken them up, your f- first band that you've managed and you've um, catapulted them or helped them catapult from underground band to super happening band. It was super happening in our heads and amongst the, you know, two or 300 people that we knew it was a super happening band. In terms of, you know, in Scunthorpe, they had not heard of the Pink Floyd unless they had got their copy of the Melody Maker had come in the post to them, you know. But we were building a, a, a sort of a bill, a business where we, so that we, you know, because we had to get someone had to give us some money to pay, buy the food and things and pay the rent and so on. And so, you know, there was a need for, 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 for sort of fun. But I had a house um, or a, a half a house and, and Andrew had the, um, Andrew and Wendy had the uh, Alexander. Alexander Street. Yes, in Alexander Street, which is now an incredibly posh street. And we had people down in the basement. We had a basement and we had the ground floor and then we had the first floor. So at some stage we had three floors of people doing things. Oh, and the top floor. So we had four floors of people doing things. If you were, so Barney Bubbles would end up having a place there. Other bands would come in because after, as the Floyd became successful, if you're a young band, what do you want to do? You want to find a manager who, and, and who do you want as yeah. a man, manager who, someone who manages bigger bands, you know. And somehow or another, I think we instinctively didn't just go into the standard um, big music business route. We you know the, the sort of um, Morrison was sort of a tad links into the the, more, the wider music business, but we were sort of always somehow a bit outside as these sort of undergroundy people. And one of the major underground events that happened around then, which uh, you were involved with, and Pink Floyd was involved with, was the fourteen hour. Technicolor Dream, a concert in the Great Hall of Alexandra Palace that's in up in North London in April 1967. It was a fundraiser for International Times that was uh, needing funds at that time, organised by Hoppy and, and Miles and co. And um, I think it's actually in one of Peter Whitehead's films, Tonight Let's All Make Love in London, which we featured recently. Uh, and I think for Pink Floyd, it was a significant show for lots of reasons, partly because it was the biggest show I think maybe you'd done at the time, 
and it also turned out to be the harbinger of trouble to come, which we'll come back to in a bit. But uh, also, it sounded like you were all quite out of it. This is what you said when you were telling Jonathan Green about it back in the day. You said, that really was a psychedelic experience. It was the most psychedelic experience I've ever had. At least half the audience was doing acid. I was doing acid. We'd had to take a long drive to get there from Holland, and I did the last bit of the drive in the van. We dropped in at home and dropped some acid. And by the time we got to Alexander Palace, the acid was beginning to kick in. It sounds like you were quite an immersive manager then. I mean, you're not only getting the band to the gig, get, getting the gear to the gig, but you're, um, you're also doing acid with them. I'm also doing acid, yes. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't just managerial, official, economic, gear humping stuff, it was more personal. You, you needed to, and I suppose in some senses, most good managers, you know, sort of have some sort of parallel existence with the band so they understand them. You know, it's a question of very how, how far the one is the business and the other is the creative and, and so on. But before you had lots of big labels and A&R men coming round and you know, it was all a bit more scrappy. So like the manager would be the A&R man in some ways. Say, oh yeah, that's a good song, you know. Someone, it's very useful for a band to have someone who can say, I like that song more than that song, that version of it more than that version of it. It's always hard to do it for yourself. It's good to have someone from outside, you know. And um, so business, what A&R people do now, you know, it is, a continuing thing that sort of uh friendly or whatever it's a sort of positive positive criticism and 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 help to sort of get what you can see is that's a good song now can we make it into a good record and oh now it's quite a good record can we make it a better record what do we do with it now we've got to package it you know there's that whole learning thing as to what is the music business which i think is in a way now it's much more corporate. You know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but we were sort of feeling towards it. Was And I'm not claiming it was all Andrew and I. I mean, there were a lot, there were other people doing it as well. You know, there was Joe Boyd, obviously, and, you know, the other people around who were also making these incipient, you know, these moves, you know, other sort of managers and other bands who were sort of finding out how do I, you know, how do I take my sort of high school my grammar school music into being a business you know how do i make money from playing my instrument and how does that then build into a career and you know and and then oh should i have a manager who should be the manager do i have a publisher what's a publisher what's a manager there are all these things that you have to find out and in some senses you can read books about it but in some senses you can only find out by doing it they come up to you. If you're a happening band, I mean, a lot of people would come up to you in the early days of the Floyd and would say, oh, hello, let me introduce myself. You're the manager of the Pink Floyd, aren't you? I'd like to be your agent. I'd like to be, you know, I'd like to be your publisher. You know, and you, you, what's a publisher? Right, so you're all working it out together and it wasn't just, um, you know, you the manager giving out instructions and paying for stuff. It was a bit more um, a family affair to an extent. Yes, I mean, of course, there's a relationship with the band. There has to be if you're if you're in, involved. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with someone like Roger Waters, you're not going to tell him 
you know, what to wear. You might try, but he's probably not going to take any notice. Um, you know, he, he, he thinks he's, he knows his answers, and I think I know my answers. And in some senses, you, 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 there's a sort of blending of those things. And if, if you find you can't get on, then it, it disappears. You know, you, you find a new manager, you find a new artist, you know, um, you go back to getting a proper job, you know. Certainly, I was, you know, a big mate of Sid's, you know, and I've told the story about Interstellar Overdrive, um, which, in a way, I think is a sort of how 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 close it got. That's, this was close it got. You know, I was going over to see to see Sid, so I was walking across London, and I heard this music coming out of someone's house. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, and and I I sort of wandered over to Sid and I heard this thing and I said, oh, I heard this song and it went so, you know, and then, so I'd heard something which I'd misremembered, translated or mistranslated into my humming of it, which Sid then picked up and played on guitar and that became Interstellar Overdrive. And that (laughs) to me is is, is a very interesting story of how creativity occurs. There's that sort of series of random events and non-random events. So what I heard coming out of someone's window, which was a little red book by Love. And I'm assuming that they didn't give you any um, publishing credit on Interstellar Overdrive, though. Of course not. I didn't know what (laughs) publishing credit was, probably. (laughs) Um, Right, so let's talk about... Sid Barrett and your relationship with him. I mean, he's a figure that's sort of always seems to be in the background in many of these stories for lots of different reasons, obviously immensely talented and immensely tragic. Uh, And this, I'm about to read something which June Childs, who worked for you, who became June Boland, married Mark Boland, uh, wrote uh, about it at the time, about that uh, big gig at Alexander Palace, 14 Technicolor Dream. And it's interesting because it seems to combine all that sort of stuff okay you guys you know were a bit out of it and stuff but Sid was particularly out of it uh which she's talking about but also it's quite interesting from the point of view of music management because it brings in that whole thing about you know having to get paid uh, for the sake of the band this was the last gig that Sid played with the Floyd massive massive huge stage huge auditorium packed and she says, I think, they may have, they, I think they may have got a grand, a thousand pounds, I'm assuming. They were top of the bill. First of all, we couldn't find Sid. Then I found him in the dressing room and he was so gone. I kept saying, Sid, it's June, it's me, look at me. Roger Waters and I got him on his feet. We got him out on the stage. He had a white Stratocaster. We put it around his neck and he walked on stage. And of course, the audience went spare because they loved them. The band started to play and Sid stood there. He had his guitar around his neck and his arms just hanging down. And I was in the wing and Pete... Jenna, you, was on one side and Andrew was on the other. And we're looking at each other wondering what to do. And they did three, four numbers and we got him off. I had the money, which I always insisted on getting before we went on. And the readies were all in my bag. And Pete came across behind the stage and said, go and sit in the car. He could see what was going to happen. Sid couldn't even stand up for the set, let alone do anything else. I went to the car. Immediately, the promoter realised they weren't going to do a set. Cause the, not because the rest of the band didn't want to, but Sid couldn't. The promoter wanted the chick with the money. Pete said, I'm awfully sorry. She's gone. She had to leave early. Yes, <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's a sort of survival. 
survivalism. You know, you're in a place with all these people, you know, and the band don't get paid, I don't get paid. And in some senses, it was a very important gig and, and we'd driven all the way over from Holland to do the gig, you know, so, you know, we, we, wanted, we needed to get paid. We didn't have a lot of money so that we need to get the money we were going to get because otherwise people wouldn't get their wages. They're 15 quid a week, you know. But one does have to eat. And one does need some money in the pocket to, to, to buy a bit of dope or to whatever, you know, or to get something to eat, you know. So there is a sort of somewhere to live and so on, you know. And, you know, witnessing Barrett at that show and given the context of what was going on with him and with the band, it must have been actually very stressful, apart from getting paid. I mean, there was so much happening, probably so much riding on it, that I imagine that, um, you know, that kind of thing going wrong at that point, I mean, from a business career point of view for you and the band, must have been really quite tricky. Oh, so. yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we had, there was, was all happening, we were the happening band, we had a deal with EMI, we had a record coming out, we'd had a sort of, you know, we're getting promo from EMI and it was all looking good. We had an album coming together or being planned and, you know, all that stuff. I don't know quite what, what the sequential thing is, but, you know, that, and it was a huge gig. It was all very, it was all very sort of, and we all out of our heads one way or another you know, on, on, on dope or acid or whatever, you know. And for him, that kind of drug use or whatever else was going on with him um, proved fairly catastrophic, didn't it? So I don't know where this was in the whole uh, narrative of what happened, but he was going downhill. You were trying to help him, trying to save him and um, weren't able to, really. No, he, he went off and, and stayed with Storm and Poe. Um, and had a had a room there. Who and they? I think they were both Cambridge friends, so he felt safe with them. And so he was doing a, a lot too much acid. Then he ended up in some place in in um, as far as I can a place in in, in Gloucester Road where he, he, there was a flat where he was staying and was getting acid every day and things and they do. It all sort of disintegrated. Yeah, I mean, he disintegrated, didn't he? And of course, it's been well documented how, you know, it got so difficult for the band. Uh, he became so unpredictable on stage and off that they got to the point where they just stopped picking him up, um, you know, when they had a gig and having not picked him up once, found it easier to play without him and David Gilmore getting more involved and stuff and sort of didn't think they needed the hassle anymore. Uh, which was a kind of tragedy in itself. And of course, you and Andrew as Blackhill um, make the decision as the band's splitting up that you're going to back Sid, um, who of course had been the star, the songwriter, the gorgeous, charismatic one in the band, the kind of elfin prince. Um, and you let the rest of the band go their own way, right? And But you did carry on uh, with Sid, despite his... Uh, deterioration, disintegrating condition, and to do stuff, didn't you? Oh yeah, you know I would g try and do records with Sid, and try we'd try and get him to go, and it, it was it was all falling apart. It all fell apart, you know. And I think it fell apart for everybody. It fell apart from for Sid, and, and in some senses, 
fell apart for Black Hill, but we put other things together. We had a structure, we had some people. We didn't have to be creative, we just had to make it work. You know, we didn't have to write songs or, you know, go and stand in front of people and sing. You know, we were sitting in the background. Completely aside from the kind of professional management thing, which must have been really worrying and disappointing, um, for you both what was it like personally because I mean obviously you know you'd known him quite a long time by this time and seen you know his rise and fall and how talented he'd been it must have been quite upsetting to see him in such a state in the studio the sessions I did with Sid were just totally totally upsetting you know because he he, he was scrambled egg he could sing a bit of a song and he'd, he'd do a line or two and play a bit of guitar, but putting the, the bits together started to get beyond him, and I, which was a real sh shame because he was a, a wonderful singer and guitar player and writer and everything. He was, he was the band. Mm. I mean, the first album is Sid Barrett's album. But subsequent albums weren't. The Pink Floyd went off, you stuck with Sid, the band went off with new management and stuff, and... In the intervening years, as they rose to become, you know, the, one of the biggest rock bands in the world with all the money that that involved, did you ever have any senses of regrets or did you just like buckle down and get on with the next thing? No, I think we went on doing other things that came along and we, there were other people we looked after and so on. In some senses, you know, we were, in some senses, to be the, the original manager of the Pink Floyd was always... A, an asset, even if we weren't the managers anymore, and um, people came to the to to, to Black Hill to, to be managed and to find a career. And these are the guys who 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 discovered the Pink Floyd. So it, we were that, and that still is. Why are you talking to me now? Talking to me now because I was the first manager of the Pink Floyd. Who are you going off to see today? I got to see Pete Jenner. Who's he? Oh, he was the guy who was one of the original managers of the Pink Floyd. That's who I am. That's true, but you did also go on to be heavily involved in the careers of Mark Bolan, The Clash, Roy Harper, Billy Bragg, Ian Jewelry. You know, there's quite a lot more happened afterwards. Absolutely, but it was the key. Without the Floyd, all the others wouldn't have happened for us. Same for anyone, isn't it? For a, a, a writer, you know, someone asks you to write a, a piece on something, you do it and it's good then somebody else will ask you to do, or that person will ask you to do another piece, or somebody else will ask you to do a piece. You know, what you do leads to what you, you, you get asked to do. Exactly. But I mean, you know, the past is the past, but uh, do you ever run into those guys from Pink Floyd anymore? And if, it, if you do, what's it like? Oh, every now and then one comes across them, or I go to, well, I mean, I can, if they're doing a gig, I can always phone up and say, can I come? And they'll say yes. You know, and um, I think the one who's who I've had who's easiest to, for for me to talk with is probably is is Nick. Roger is fine. I mean, I think that if you went and interviewed Roger, he would probably have some quite nice things to say about me, as well as some less nice things. And the same with uh, I think Dave Gilmore would have more nice things to say about me and less nasty things to say. Um, and I think Nick would be. On the whole, Nick has always been the, the friendliest and uh, about he, he's the most amiable. But your life uh, moved on from Pink Floyd. And as we said, you know, you managed lots of other people. Uh, and also the kind of counterculture moved on, didn't it? 60s turned into 70s and 
things got a bit darker, started to evolve a bit. And for you guys, I guess it was a different era. It was shifting and, and what we did changed, you know. And um, the music business was changing um, and what we did changed and our perception of what we could do. But we went on and looked on other things and I don't do very much now, but... Um, you know, I still do do things. Some people are still foolish enough to come and see me. You know, what's a great thing is it's like having children. And I don't mean this in a patronising way. I, that thing, they grow up. Your artists, you know, when you start working with an artist, you're really useful to them. And then you can go on being useful and structure is gone. But you become less and less necessary. You know, you grow up. You know, when you're a kid, you need someone to go out and buy your food for you. You know, when you grow up, you, you the next thing you want is to have some money so you can buy your own food. And then the next thing, you know, can you give me some money so I can get, you know. Then the next <laughs> thing is that you build something whereby, you know, you you make the money which buys your food. And it's the same with artists. I think that, you know, that relationship with a manager has that sort of long-term effect, you know. And if you think about even people like Brian Epstein, I mean, they sort of disappear, don't they? The managers disappear. Who, you know, Lou Goldham. You, you, as a manager, you have a function which is really beneficial and useful and, and, and important. And as time goes by, it becomes less important because there are other people who come in and do the bits or, you know, the band become more efficient or they get roadies or they get an agent and an agent in America and they like work in America rather than, you know, so it shifts. Time shifts. Things change with time. You know, when you're designing a new car, you don't want someone who designed the first car. You want someone who's designed a car last month. You don't want, you know, a, 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 a sort of 1940s car, which, you know, runs out, which sort of, you know, still sort of works, but goes bang quite a lot and things like that. You know, I mean... I don't quite see you as somebody... Uh like a 1940s car or driving a 1940s car. I see you maybe in the 60s driving a Carmen Gear or a, I don't know, maybe a Hillman Imp. But yeah, a Carmen Gear. No, no, no. I mean, I might have wished I had a Carmen Gear. I might have <laughs> fantasised about having a Carmen Gear. I mean, I'm a banger Citroen now. You know, I'm an old geezer. I mean, I'm 77. You know, what the fuck are the kids doing? I don't know. You need to get a Tesla. Get with it. Get a Tesla. <laughs> I can't afford a fucking Tesla. Give me a break. No one, no one in my in, working with me is earning enough money to buy me a Tesla. I because mean, that's what? the other thing. The artists have to earn the money for me to make money. You know, I mean, the yeah. promoter does puts on a gig, and then he pays some of the money to the artist, and then the artist pays some of the money to the manager and the agent. What are my advantages? I st I've got experience and I've got a historical knowledge. What's my disadvantages? I don't know what the, my main disadvantage, I don't know what the fuck's happening at the moment. I don't listen to the radio. I don't listen to records. I don't know what's happening. I don't look at the NME. You know, I'm out of touch. <laughs> Does that matter? I don't think so really particularly. I'm out of touch because I don't particularly care about being in touch. I don't care. I'm not interested in deeply, but someone may come in and may tickle my fancy. They may come in and, oh, they're interesting. 
I might end up managing somebody again next year who becomes huge. They might be intrigued by what I know and what I've done, and they might better extract from me my knowledge and use it to develop their careers. Join them in it, and I may be part of it, and I may better make some money off of them. And I may enable them to make some money for themselves. Quite right, too. So, well, listen, um, we're coming to the end here. Let, I just Before we finish, um, I wanted to circle back to those heady days of the 60s and 70s, because the other thing which you haven't mentioned is that you were, were instrumental in kicking off that tradition of concerts outside in Hyde Park, which had become massive. It's become, <clears throat> until COVID anyway, it become part of the annual calendar. Uh, I imagine a huge money-making thing for Hyde Park. But when you started off, it was your idea, wasn't it? And um, started off with the Floyd and uh, various other bands that you were involved with at the time. And then, of course, the Stones doing that huge show. So tell us how that all came about. In a way, it's a, it's a nice story because it in, includes my, my dear late wife. Um, we were out for a walk, and I think we had my young son in, in, in the pram, and we were walking in Hyde Park, went for a walk in Hyde Park. And so there was a bandstand. I was like, oh, that's interesting, there's a bandstand. So that was really the, the, fir the first kickoff. Oh, look, there is a bandstand in Hyde Park. So music in Hyde Park exists. Now, that bandstand was, on, was an old-fashioned bandstand, and there were, you know, maybe 40... Uh, deck chairs around it and they were you know they were playing brass bands you know I'd also read and heard about the fact they did the concerts in 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 California open air concerts you know because they have better weather than we do and so those two things coincided and I thought oh why don't we do a concert in Hyde Park for some of our bands you know that'd be a nice place for them to do so I found out who do I get in touch with and I got in touch with the person who has to okay it is Jenny Lee. She was the minister who was going to decide whether we could do something in the park. And I then discovered or realised that Jenny Lee had been my grandfather's girlfriend. And, uh, you know, he died by then. He died. I wrote to Jenny Lee in her ministerial capacity and said... Here's someone who was her old boyfriend's grandson putting on to, oh, well, let's give it a chance. So she gave it the okay, and then everybody let it happen because no one had done it. It would seem like, oh, we do concerts in the park. Why shouldn't we do a different sort of concert in the park? And then that's how the concerts in Hyde Park started, and they became huge. And then, of course, they got, they reached their natural peak and then they sort of went into decline and became this sort of awful Branson version where you all sit in chairs and you know you pay for your ticket and it's just another gig it's another concert the great thing about the Hyde Park concerts was that they were different there were things you could go to on a sad Saturday, Saturday or Sunday afternoon you could go along and there was someone playing music great I could just sit down and eat my sandwich it was quite anarchic then part of the uh, whole underground thing oh yes absolutely absolutely there were never that i don't know if we ever had we did have sort of by the time we were doing the stones in hyde park we had to have some sort of backstage parties and things but they did it wasn't until it got they got really big 
it started off with being a smaller thing, you know, on smaller stages and, and things. And then it was Blind Faith and then it was the Rolling Stones. People were sort of climbed up into the trees and sat in the trees and watched it. You know, and they brought their picnics. Didn't sound like you made any money then. Oh, we didn't make any money, absolutely. Or we made, yeah, because, you know, there were TV rights. We didn't get paid on those. You know, we, I was, I'm a terrible businessman in many ways. I'm, I'm a good creative, um, whatever, creative manager. I'm not a good businessman. Look at the state of my office now, you know. <laughs> I'm clearly not a great businessman. Think of what all the stuff I've done. And I haven't got anything to show for it in a way. I've got a bit to show for it. I've got my memories and I'm still alive and I've got my kids and I've got my grandchildren. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, it's not a tragic tale. But, you know, considering what I've done, I've really made remarkably little money. I'm a terrible businessman. Yeah, but come on. I mean, you made, you, you've made an impact, haven't you? I mean, you made a countercultural impact, obviously with the Pink Floyd, but also all those other bands we talked about. And, um, you know, the free school, the IT, and all those uh, initiatives you're involved with. I mean, the Hyde Park thing, I mean, you know, those concerts outside, all that stuff. I mean, you know, Glastonbury, the festivals probably came from that. Um, and, you know, that stuff that you guys were up to in the 60s and as it turned into the 70s, a lot of the political movements that emerged from that time, you know, had that roots in that uh, early countercultural stuff, right? How does it feel looking back on it now? I think I have helped. I certainly had some impact in changing Britain a little bit and then some impact on the sort of music that gets played and the way it's worked. And it, I think you should always respect your roots. You know, that I respect sort of what Brian Morrison did for me. I respect what the, what the Floyd did. And I think the Floyd respect what I did. You know, I'm sure, you know, if you ask Roger what he thinks about me, he'd have mixed views some aspects of what I, I, I've done, he probably really detests, and some things he would think, well, if it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have happened. There we have it. If it wasn't for him, it wouldn't have happened. Thank you very much, Pete. And thanks for listening. We got to the end, rushed to the end there. Um, having had a few managers myself, I've got to say it's an unenviable job. I mean, the, if you're going to work in the music industry, why would you be a music manager? I mean, the only thing more tough, I think, is being a tour manager, you know, where you've got to take care of a lot of adults who revert to being adolescents. Anyway, there we go. It was a fascinating time with Pete. Thanks again to him, to Mushi as well, who set it up. We appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, you can hear more stories from the counterculture, of course, by going to www.bureauvosculture.com. I was Stephen Coates. See you next time.